can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Well, good evening, everybody. Mark, it's wonderful to be back. We had a week off. How was your week? I had a great week. I had a wonderful week off. Yeah. But I did miss the Dr. Joe show. I missed it. Too. I had to do it. Thank you. Well, I love that. I love right. who we are and why we do what we do. We are doing controversial topics That's one week after another. I know. It just it's great. Was, it seems like there are quite a few around yes. these days. Yep. I just wanted to thank Greg and Veterans Voice for covering us last week. They did a double. I heard it was an incredible show. So thanks, Greg, and all those veterans who were listening. Tonight, we have uh, some very interesting uh, material to talk about. Yeah, what, what are we going to talk about tonight? I mean, we, we've done guns. We've, we've done uh, guns. gone over guns. We've. Uh, what else have we talked about? The NFL and the this NFL national anthem. And racism and, yeah. and, and the ability to stand or kneel as you choose. Yeah. But tonight, tonight, I don't know whether anybody out there has ever felt like suing someone over some medical thing or whether they have known someone who has been injured and wants to get either is it justice or is it revenge and that's what we're trying to figure out so tonight we have an incredible guest we have eric parker of parker shear an incredible would you say a medical malpractice lawyer that's certainly part of the mix yeah and I, yeah and and he is here with us live in studio folks we're, we're going to be talking about a lot of things tonight but really it's this idea is what is revenge what is justice what is it when somebody says i have been wronged and I want someone to make it right. An eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. Yeah. And Amarabi's code, right? That's right. I want to introduce Mr. Parker. Eric, thanks so much for being here in our studio. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, Eric and I go way back, way, way, way back, and have done some of these cases mm -hmm. together. But I just want to read to you what Eric wrote to me. What our topic of the day is. The topic be? of the day. Uh, I saw it on Facebook, Dr. Joe. It was so on Facebook. Gotta, is so everyone I, following Dr. Joe on Facebook? I, I would hope so. Because we're going to start doing a Facebook Live with Dr. Joe. Yeah, and, and would you like to just read part of that? The, the part that hasn't quite come up on the screen yet, Dr. Joe? The, the part that says it right here. I'm going to say it. This is, so this is what Eric wrote to me. He says, one subject that I will forever be mystified about is the psychological relationship between revenge and justice. Why an eye for an eye? How does money satiate the parents who lost a child due to another person's negligence? Is the money compensation? Is it punishment? Is the payment of money an offset of other burdens that should not be borne by grieving parents? in addition to the pain they suffer every day, or is it greed masquerading as justice? Great question. And it's so articulate. So, Eric, Mr. Parker, let's what talk. What do you got? What do you got? Well, it's, it's you know, I've been doing this for about 30, just over 30 years. Of my, my life is basically devoted to representing victims of catastrophic injuries. You know, no disparagement of the TV lawyer set that does the volume fender bender stuff. I, I have tremendous respect. So you don't have a billboard up yeah, on, no, uh, on the we, mass bike? We've never advertised in 
than in my entire career. That said, what we focus on at our firm are people who've suffered truly, for the most part, catastrophic injuries. These are usually involving wrongful death, cases involving terrible injuries, paraplegia, quadriplegia. Committed at the negligence of others. Committed, absolutely, caused by the negligence of others. So this is, you know, although there is a a division of my firm that does criminal defense, that's not the area that I focus on. Got it. I do almost, I do entirely the representation of plaintiffs in negligence cases. But I, you know, I think anybody who does anything for a living in the professional world always wonders, you know, what, you know, what, what drives people to call me? Right. I mean, right. And, and it's interesting because there's a very simple answer that there's a financial compensation for these catastrophic injuries. And so the glib answer is it's about the money. Yeah. But I don't think it's that. I don't think that. I think that's too simple an answer. I don't think it's often just about the money. At the level of cases you're talking about versus the, I was bumped in the back at a Mm -hmm. red light and I think my neck hurts. I'm going to go get me some. Right. I want to convert a moment into some sort of lottery ticket. But we're talking about a much bigger more impactful type of injury. Yep. We're talking about injuries that are life-altering in the most profound way. So, look, a certain amount of this work is about paying for medical bills, right? I mean, these bills are staggering. The cost of somebody who suffered paraplegia or quadriplegia, we're talking, you know, conservative estimates. If it's a young person of eight, ten, more million dollars over in, in immediate cost, to Not to mention it. the future costs of having to deal with that. Huge, huge. But that's just scratching the la- the first layer of it. I mean, the second thing is, what just happened to this person's life? Right. I mean, they, they're now staring at a ceiling forever. Yeah. You know, I, I recently uh, was asked to, to evaluate a case of a young man, relatively young man, uh, and his wife who were in Mexico, when the next thing the wife learns is that the husband suffered an injury when he dove into the water, uh. into the ocean, ocean, not a pool. And he broke his neck. Mm. And I went to see him at Spalding, and the level of catastrophic loss is unimaginable. He had no real feeling from the neck down. And so you say to yourself, well, all right, well, what's, you know, in this particular case, I'll just kind of concede the fact that we did not find that there was a viable avenue of recovery. Right. And, you know, a lot of people I was going to ask that. Right. I mean, because it was in the, the ocean. Right. right. Who's at fault no. there? Right. Right. And despite public opinion, believe it or not, that those who do what I do for a living work very hard to figure out a viable theory, but right. are the first to concede. If there isn't one, explain that to the client. There's just no recovery here. There's no, there's no wrongdoing. Right. But if there had been a viable area of recovery, it's a very complex analysis as to what leads the person to say, okay, that seems fair. Is it just, a, I mean, what basically does that, what is motivating that person who's still, a, you know, a quadriplegic? Right. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm trying to understand. So when you say what motivates the person to say this seems fair? In other words. Well, let's let's take another case that, sure. that, that someone's actually at fault. Somebody mm-hmm. has, has committed negligence or gross negligence or, or what have you. I have two fatalities going right now. Death of uh, husbands and fathers caused by young people texting while driving. Uh, hmm. um, it's it's so prevalent now. It's it's the bane of the insurance industry because right. they can't get a handle on what to do about it. And I know this from insiders at some of the biggest insurance companies in the world uh, are saying to me, "This one's nuts." So now, the teenager driving, teenager the parents' driving. car mm-hmm. down the road swerves 
takes out a family. Takes out a family. And, and by the way, distracted driving is not really limited to texting. It's in, ways. I mean, right. know, that's the thing. These kids have their iPhone on their lap because everyone knows these holders don't work. Right. Um, but Waze, as you press, I'm a passenger. Yeah. Well, so does that that's cover for Waze. them? Does okay. that cover them? <laughs> the, the, because the, the, I can override that really easily. The lawyers of Waze said, you know what? Put that button yeah. in there. Yeah, because um, I've overridden that. I think a few I'm the passenger, have. sure. <laughs> I think you're in good company. <laughs> so, um, but would that protect them because they've... Uh, just, you know what? We'll see what happens with that. I don't think anybody's decided to invest in going, you know, it'll be tested. Sure, it will. But to answer your question, so you've got these terrible cases, right? And in those cases, you have both a crime and a civil case, a negligence case. So on the the criminal side, punishment is a very different thing. Punishment is meant as a deterrent. Uh, Our society, and going back to biblical times, have said, look, if you break our laws... You're going to pay a hefty personal price. If you commit a crime in North Korea, they'll take two generations with you to prison. Because mm-hmm. the platoon theory of not just you, soldier, but everybody in your platoon is going to suffer this is very powerful. It's extremely yeah. powerful as a, as a deterrent. Right. right. So there's a whole science about the criminal side of deterrence. But when you cross over to the civil side, where it's only about compensation, Massachusetts has one very unique feature that's not necessarily shared by other states. I do most of my work in Massachusetts and New York. But in Massachusetts, we don't have punitive damages for right. almost any civil crime, civil civil uh, wrong, Negligence, tort. Right. We're so not a- for, a, for a non-lawyer, because folks, just so you know, I, I'm sitting here with two lawyers, which could be intimidating, except they're both so great at what they do. <laughs> so what what does this mean? What, what, what did you just say? That, that you don't have... Punitive damages. Okay, which means... Which means that in the civil arena, yep. we don't ask the jury, how much would you award to punish the defendant for what they did? We have a compensatory system here, okay. which says, how much do you think it would is reasonable to make the plaintiff... Whole. Right. The audience, do you know what who the plaintiff is? Who's the plaintiff? So the plaintiff in a civil context is the person who was the victim of negligence. Right. And then the person that, that did that becomes the defendant. Is the defendant. Okay. And the and the consequence is limited to economic sanctions. Right. It's about money. It basically that's the currency of, of exchange. In criminal cases, it's not about money. It's it, about punishment. It's about freedoms. It's about freedom. Right. But mm-hmm. we're we're also switching from negligence to intent. Right. So the cases you're talking about for compensation and making whole, somebody made a mistake, whether mm-hmm. it was a blatant, grossly negligent mistake or an accident. Mm-hmm. We're not punishing them in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. That's correct. However, the civil side. However, if they forcefully drive down the road and pull over onto the sidewalk and take out a bus stop of children, mm-hmm. intentionally, they're going to be punished. Big time. But this, what is the punishment for something like that? I mean, well, we just saw that in, uh, t- in New York City. We just saw that in New York. Right? You know, we, and our hearts go out to all those people. But what do you do? What, right. what should the punishment be? But that is not necessarily something that we can decide here. I mean, it sounds like people are still trying to figure that out, and they will be figuring that out, even though, though certain people tweet things that give an idea of what they want, are not going to be able to solve this one easily. Because, first of all, so many people have been hurt, but but more, there's all the weird motivations. We're not talking about motivations in these cases, right? I mean, these are, negligence is not a motivated, I am 
going to do something to hurt someone else. This is, as you say, accident. Well, yes. Um, I mean, the word accident. So let's be a little more precise. Great. So a perfect example is, uh, so let's define negligence. All right. Okay. So negligence, as best I can define it, and other people may have a different definition, but the way I define it is the departure from, for example, a standard. Okay. So, a, and we use the reasonable person standard in the tort business, in the civil litigation, in, uh, in negligence cases. We say, what would a reasonable person do under a set of circumstances? And if a person departs from that reasonable standard, then they are negligent. So, for example, let's use medical as an example. If a patient comes to an emergency room complaining of chest pains, shortness of breath, clutching their arm, it, you ask, a hundred ER docs, what they would do then? They would order an EKG. Right. Uh, they would do. There's a protocol right. for it. But if one doctor says, nah, "You know what? I, I, his wife told me that he just had some Mexican food. I think it's probably indigestion. Forget the EKG. Forget all that. Just go home. Take a, t- a Zantac, and you'll be fine." That person goes home. They have an MI, and it's over. Right. A big heart attack. That's right. negligence. So what we have here is a departure. Right. From the, standard from the standard of care. What is it like for a family to go through this? I mean, either if it's the death of someone else or, or they've got their own injury and now they're living with this. What, what have you seen? So, I mean, I mean, this is varied as you can imagine. I mean, the, the interesting thing is you have to start with some things that most people are cynical about. First of all, I'm a trial lawyer, but I adore physicians. I'm, I am the son of a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the nephew of a physician. I love doctors and all the things they do. They wake up in the morning trying to help. And I think anybody who does what we do for a living knows that we are actually not at war with medicine. I wish that more doctors understood that. We, uh, we, we know that doctors, for the most part, and I don't mean just somewhat, 99%, if not more, of doctors wake up in the morning and go to work trying to help their patients. They don't have any other agenda. Right. And it's true. It's a, that's, I know this to be true. Yep. What happens, however, is in a certain number of instances, and it's, it's fairly prevalent for reasons that are just as common in driving cars as operating construction equipment or manufacturing products, there's a certain percentage that decide for whatever reason or don't decide for another reason to stick to the plan. Basically, they go a route that isn't easy to explain. They they don't do the test that everybody suggests that be done. They don't see something that most docs who would look at it would say isn't obvious. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? They don't see it. And so they depart from a standard. And when they do, there can be absolutely horrific consequences. So what's interesting is clients will suspend compat. For so most people who make a mistake, your waitress brings out the wrong lunch. Right. <laughs> you don't sue her. Right. right. In fact, the same emotions don't immediately come to mind. You don't say, you know what, this is, I want her head. I ordered a right. roast beef sandwich and she brought me a chicken cutlet. I want this woman fired. Right. I want to make sure she's never doing We don't do that. No, right? we don't. We don't. But in the context of the, of our loved ones, we become warriors for them, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, whether, Especially those who can't advocate for themselves, which is often children and the elderly. Mm-hmm. So parent, uh, children of elderly who see their parents abused in nursing home situations or neglected is a better word, uh, neglected in nursing home, can are 
they become abs- I mean you want to talk about driven for justice I mean I you and kids same thing you see that your child was the victim of someone's negligence all of that forgiveness and compassion whether and whether forgiveness is at the core of your religious of values out the window I watched some of the most religious people who would be professing forgiveness become the least forgiving people you have ever seen really? in your life mm-hmm. when it's about their children or family member, even more so than themselves. So, so this is beginning to, to get to the core of, of what your question really was, is what feeds a hunger for justice? Mm-hmm. What feeds this? So, I mean, human beings are social animals. We are designed uh, to protect the people in our group because it's it's very beneficial to do that. But at what point does it come not just protecting them? Because at this point, you're not protecting them anymore. You they're they're already hurt, and now you need to do something. So I wonder, you know, from a sort of shrinky point of view, I can I can see how a parent or a loved one would say, "I was powerless to do anything then, but dang, I'm going to do something." now right. and you who hurt my loved one you're gonna pay mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i think you're absolutely onto it is that it's transferred yes it becomes uh i wasn't there at this time or i couldn't have prevented the harm i couldn't i couldn't spare i couldn't protect my child my uh, my parent but now right. or worse but, yet but, maybe i could have that's and right i wasn't the, able to right the guilt that mm-hmm. can right. come along with that mm-hmm. the guilt of having been powerless and now trying to right to find Revenge, do something like the Catholic Church scandal. Mm-hmm. You know, those folks were pretty upset. Yes, they were. Uh, but but there's also a wonderful phrase, right? Revenge is a dish best served cold. Mm-hmm. So what about that? What about the the doctor or the somebody who has done something and then they wait, they wait. I mean, anybody talked about the, the potential torture and torment that that person is going through? Do the do the doctors know? That they've done something wrong, or do they say, no, look, you know, anyone can make a mistake? Never. Listen, you're the psychiatrist, so I'll, I'll ask you this question. Is there any limit to a human being's ability to justify behavior or to rationalize? Is probably what I'm trying to say. Right. We can rationalize almost we anything. Yes, we can. You know, especially if we're if, if we're, we're assisted by counsel. I have no doubt in the White House right now. You know, this was interesting because I, was in, I used to read a lot of Nixon biographies, um, mm. and one of the things that was I learned so much about you all the time, Eric. <laughs> no, I, I understood his, some of his pathology, but I would say one of the things I found fascinating about Nixon was he worked in reverse. He would often ask the guy, so, and we went there because, and, you know, one mm. of the aides would say, we, because we had to uh, do some charitable work. Yes, we had to, why were we doing charitable work? They, they literally <laughs> worked backwards from their moment. But that was just to rat, that was, that was grotesque rationalization. In the real world, a lot of times when a doctor, for example, has an issue, there's an issue about their departure from the standard of care, you know, you'll have an enabler, you'll have a, a defense lawyer, and I love defense lawyers in law, don't get me wrong, but they will say, for example, well, you know, is, was that treatment, is, does anyone do that? 
that? I mean, isn't that one of the things you can, before you know it, that same person is saying, yeah, well, that's true. A certain number of people do make that decision. Right. The and insurance company won't pay for that. Absolutely. So, uh, they well, they want cooperation. So that right. that's, that's a right. sort of separate topic, but, but you're on to that. But um, my point is that if you facilitate a person's rationalization, it, it takes two minutes to come to the point where you, you can actually believe, right. you know, and you do believe. It's not even fake. You actually believe that you did the right thing. And that's what makes a defense in these cases is that the whether it's a doctor or a product designer or whoever it is that is being, you know, allegedly had deviated from the standard of care, before you know it, they have a very fortified defense. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it, and they believe it. They it's not just they're reading the script. That's the amazing thing. But that's the pathology, if you want to call it, of the defense side of things. Right. I find it amazing that what what is it that does, what does it for people who bring these cases? What, you know, what is the thing that makes them feel whole? Right. The other person hurts, Mm -hmm. right? Revenge. The eye for the eye. And and from your experience, Eric, with the parents, let's say, what is it like for them to, in essence, have to recreate this trauma over and over again, sometimes for, for years, as long as this case is going on? A lot of the time, the parents really, in a, in a case, for example, with the tragic loss of a child, a lot of times when we get close enough to a trial, it's parents are really getting nervous about reliving it. They, yeah. it's, they, they're not nervous about getting the process started. In fact, they're motivated to get the process started. But the process of living through yet another detailed account of what happened becomes very, very painful. And I think that any lawyer, trial lawyer, who does this sort of stuff has to always keep in mind it's almost a similar situation to medicine. Don't make it worse. Right. Right? Don't make it worse. That, this process shouldn't be about creating more pain. We fr- frequently will tell parents, um, and this goes to it, I've, I've given this speech a thousand times to parents who wanted a claim brought for their child. And you and I have worked on these cases where children have been abused yeah. uh, in certain circumstances, where you know we really have to wonder whether th- the child going through the civil trial is, so- is going to make it worse for that child. And we argue against it. Don't go there. And most parents become aware of it and say, you know, you're right. This is this could literally open wounds that we've been reasonably successful in closing by now. So do you get it started? We, and we do the speech at the beginning of the case. This isn't something we do just week before the trial. We say, listen, let's look at the arc of this. I understand what would have happened here. But understand, we've talked to the child's therapist who thinks it would be a huge mistake to put this child on the stand or to have this child talk about this horrible event. And, you know, a a good percentage of the time, despite the fact that there might be compensation, the harm outweighs the benefit. And I think that's just prudent lawyering. But it is, I see in the eyes of the parent a conflict often. There's a stare that I see. Of I don't want to let this go. I don't want to let this go, but I also don't want to. I don't want my kid to suffer for it. But but, but does a, a, I mean in this case would would a child have to testify, or a child have to be put through it again? Can't the, the parents say you know this has happened? Here's here's somebody who's assessed my child who said here's the trauma. We know the the etiology of it. We we can see where they are now. In certain instances, we don't need the child to testify. Under a certain age, it's pretty much useless because they can't give, they can't articulate the degree of of pain. They can't, we see it almost the way a pediatrician diagnoses a child based on 
the symptoms rather right. than a, a narrative. But over a certain age, absolutely, there's no question that the courts will allow the child to take the stand. And in fact, the defendant may call them to be deposed, to have a deposition taken, a statement under oath, uh, or even to ta- or even call them as a witness in their case. Unlike criminal, where the defendant doesn't have to take the stand, in a civil case, you do. And so if a child is, you know, 14, 15, 16, it's not unusual that they would be expected to testify as to what happened what it did to them in the first person, not having a parent who has a motive, right? Because we do this, I think, in little ways all the time. You know, you you may seek some sort of justice or revenge. I mean, I don't know whether anybody's, you know, been angry with somebody at school and you walk down the hallway, you see him and you just, you know, just jab him a little bit with your elbow. You know, you, you do something just to let them know that you are not going to take it, that you are going to somehow have some retribution for what has hurt you. What do you think about this, Mark? I, I think it's really interesting. I, I, I want to question Eric about um, where it all began, though. Mm. You know, where did this compensation all start from? Where somebody said, okay, you've wronged me, an eye for an eye, I'm going to hit you where it hurts in the pocketbook. And and have you seen anybody, any clients or victims say, you know, I, I live in peace, you know, an eye for an eye and the whole world would be blind. Where did, where did it all begin that when somebody made a mistake, they had to pay, pay money for that mistake, as opposed to a public censure or, you know, maybe a license being revoked or maybe the inability to, to do their profession if it was bad enough when, when did it become a monetary thing was it I can't tell you the I'd love to know the answer to this question of which what year our civil justice system was really born it was an evolution I suspect yeah. of what was at one time just you know the king's court type of thing and then at a certain point we you know all of our law here in mass in the United States is largely modeled after English law right but I think that what happened was we began to realize that at a certain point that victims of errors, while not necessarily entitled to punish, were still entitled to be compensated for their loss. So the the, the person who stole might lose a hand in the old days, right? right? But if they stole from somebody, how do we put that money back, right? And so at a certain point, we cleaved our system into two different tracks. The civil trial system is completely distinct from the criminal trial system. They are completely separate. Nothing in what we do, and what my firm, for example, focuses on, is related to the justice that goes to punishment and so forth. This is simply about the compensatory aspect of it, putting it back. The fascinating aspect of it is we don't have the ability to undo for example, a surgical error. We don't have the ability to undo the, the texting driver that kills. All we can use as a medium of exchange are dollars. It's the only f- sort of exchangeable medium that we have. Right. If we had another one that was better, I'd be all for it. But we don't. All we can do, and that's why a very le- legitimate motivator, I, and I, you and I have talked about this, a motivator for a parent who has lost a child, you know, because a lot of times people say to us, what will money do for that right. parent? What does it do? And I'll, I'll answer what that does. 
it removes other burdens. So the parent who loses a child, for example, in a car accident to a drunk driver, who is so completely demolished by this loss, and any parent can understand this, it's the, the most awful thing you can imagine, the loss of a child. That parent may not be able to work anymore. I worked on cases where parents could not work for such a long period of time. There was a thought, the house was, you know, all of that, right? Right. So what the money does, it keeps the house. Yeah. It keeps the other kids in, in school. Right. It keeps food coming in because that parent can't get out of bed. Yeah, they're so dis- they're so completely decimated by this, and I think that that is intensely important because until you're in that situation, until you've seen how debilitating that kind of catastrophic loss can be, you just don't have a clue of the need and what we replace in those lives. And that is not revenge. I don't think that is revenge. That is justice. That's compensation. Right. You know, in its truest sense. But it would feel punitive to. It, it has a punitive effect, let's right. face it. But although punitive society, to, to who? To the person? To the person who committed the wrongdoing. But for insurance. And that was the big difference. Because in, when, you create, when you have an insurance industry that serves as the buffer yeah. between the, the victim and the defendant, you're not really punishing the defendant right. because an insurance company is stepping up and writing the check for them in the end. Which, in some ways, has a very interesting effect because you start to realize a certain number of people never really thought that through. You know, they say something like, I want this person to know what they did to... And the fact of the matter is, the insurance company is largely the only ones you're ever dealing with. Mm. For the most part, civil defendants don't even really get too involved in the day-to-day of this process. Maybe a trial. But their bill is going to be paid by an insurance company. You know, we have a board of registration in medicine that does the real supervisory role, making sure that bad doctors are supervised. Civil cases do not result in doctors losing their licenses. Hmm. That's really interesting. So what about the victim that doesn't want the retribution? Do you you see... I mean, they probably wouldn't be coming to your office necessarily, but maybe they're coming to your office for advice. But are there people still out there that would say an eye for an eye is not the way to go? Because as Mahatma Gandhi would say, right. an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Right. Absolutely. The answer is yes. I see of, of every year a fair number of people who say to me, I want to be compensated for this, but I don't want that defendant to be harmed by it. Got it. And it's it's um, uh, it's refreshing, I guess, as a human being mm-hmm. to me. It's refreshing that vengeance and revenge is not the motivator. Compensation right. is. I, won't, I don't have statistics on what percentage, yeah. but they're absolutely there every single year. Um, regardless of their backgrounds, there are people who simply say, I don't want this to touch the other person. But I, if they have insurance, for example, I would like my car fixed. I'd like my medical bills paid. Uh, I, I did miss work. I do have pain. But don't let this, you know. Ruin their life. Yeah, you know where you see that? Interestingly, uh, claims, in intra-family claims. Claims about a, I mean, listen, think about it. Who's typically in our car? Someone we've never met. Right, right, true. Right. The person sitting in our car is usually a very close person to us. Right. We don't generally, unless we're Uber drivers, right, we're right. Generally, they're generally family. Or hitchhiking. Right? right. And there are plenty of cases where uh, 
you know, you, you a, a family member is bringing a claim against another family member, and believe me, it it's it goes without saying they don't want to take their brother's house. But they'll take the insurance. But check. they'll take the insurance, which is what empowers the insurance side to say it can only get so bad. So we have some latitude here because no matter what the outcome, it's going to be limited to the policy. As it just gets hyper technical. Wow. But you know, the concern that I have is that revenge itself. There's a stigma to to the word. I mean, revenge itself does not sound like something that is a morally ethical. Well, it's not a Judeo-Christian value, is right? It? I mean, forgiveness is. Right. right. Forgiveness is absolutely, you know, the thing we all want to do or want other people to do, especially if we've done something wrong. We would love them to forgive us. But revenge, uh, it's a very interesting psychological component. Because well, take we, it to the other side. Take it to the criminal side. Yeah. You know, that's where I would think more people down to the core would want revenge. You know, when that person does harm to your child, you know, the Penn State situation. You're walking through that locker room and you look into that shower stall and you see your son. Yeah. There would be revenge. I, I can't imagine many people would be able to restrain themselves in that scenario. But but again, why would we call that revenge and not justice? Is justice the sort of the thing that the system imposes and revenge is in the psychological component of the human being that we feel this desire for revenge and then we seek justice in order? But maybe justice doesn't suffice, right? Okay. Maybe revenge is what this, the, uh, the spirit needs, if you will. Well, again, from from a from an evolutionary point of view, from a survival point of view, this this idea of revenge must have some yield to it. I mean, we we wouldn't have re- preserved this emotion, this desire, if there wasn't some evolutionary adaptive significance to it. That on some level, knowing maybe it maybe it's more for I'm just thinking out loud. Maybe it's more for the other person to say, you know, people seek revenge. So here we are. We're, we're talking about about revenge, about justice, about medical malpractice, about people who have had horrible, horrible injuries and then have to decide really how how they make themselves whole, how other people will make them whole. Eric, you've been doing this well. How do you keep up with this? How do you keep yourself whole psychologically? I'm not sure I do. Well, <laughs> I, It's funny. My brother-in-law uh, has uh, three boys, and I was at a restaurant with him years ago, and they were at that age where it was like a saloon fight uh-huh. every time we went to a restaurant. These three were on top of each other. And I turned to my brother-in-law, and I said, I don't know how you do it. And he looked at me and said, I don't think I am. <laughs> you know? What I go through, in what I, what I experience listening to these stories is nothing compared to what these people go through who suffer the real deal, mm-hmm. you know, real catastrophic loss. Maybe in time, all of the stories have a cumulative effect where it does something to you. Maybe it builds scar tissue around you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not, you, you tell me that you're the pro, but all I can say is I have seen many, many, many people at their worst and their at their real absolute worst. I mean, 
there's something about sudden loss that is just unraveling of of and you you know it's, yes absolutely it, it's un, unbearable to watch the pain that you're seeing we often see people in, in that mode because for reasons which you can be cynical about and that's fine but people do call lawyers quickly after catastrophic events so we see them while it's very fresh mm-hmm. and the vision the the images i have of people in those times is is it's harrowing i mean it's it's absolutely awful but I, you want to be useful and and that and that is i think one of the saving things that i have uh, as a psychiatrist and i also work with people who have had you know horrendous things occur and for me it's an, it's an incredible honor and privilege to be working with someone in their time of need and trying to help them heal in that way and i i think that's what you're doing as well you know trying to to help them heal even though you know that the medicine may be somebody else having to to really to pay for it that is that is ultimately what uh happens but i mean i can tell you that the motivator is truly to put humpty dumpty back together again for lack of a more artful description it is to try you can't go back in time we can't undo what was done but we can help them put the pieces back as best as possible and when we do that and we do very often. It's one of the most thrilling feelings you can possibly imagine. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And you know, one of the things that, that we talk about on the Dr. Joe show is something called the I am approach, mm-hmm. which is something I've been developing a long time. The idea that people are doing the best they can at every moment in time with the potential to change. And I think in this this show, this is one of the hardest things to really accept about the I am. Is that, you know, even people who make these mistakes, these terrible, terrible, sometimes negligent mistakes that hurt other people, unfortunately, that's their I am at that point. And I, as a psychiatrist, am not going to judge. I'm trying to understand why it happens. But what, what we've also talked about is how the two principles of the I am become very clear. Small changes can have big effects. You look down at that telephone to text. Right. Small change, it can have a catastrophic and big effect. Mm-hmm. And the other, you control no one, you influence everyone. And you choose what kind of influence you want to be. You have responsibility for the kind of influence that you're going to be. And I think that's part of also revenge and justice, is if you're going to take revenge on someone, that may be your I am, but you're also going to be held responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And if we can do it through the legal system so that everybody is, you know, sort of on board with it, upfront with it it's there's nothing hidden i think the the psychological ramification of hidden revenge is what we really struggle with and then you know that that we are we are going to plot and scheme outside of the system of law in order to take vengeance on someone who has wronged us that is not what i think is happening here that is not what justice is about revenge i think really we do need to separate it from what's happening in the court and the legal system Mm -hmm. in that way. Granted, it may feel wonderful if, if, if somebody has hurt you or hurt someone you love and they are punished for it, you may feel some relief, some sense of justice. But sometimes revenge seems misplaced. Misplaced. Yep. Yeah. And listen, society, and we, we like to think of our society as shaping good values, but I'll give you an example. And I'm going to sound like I'm an old fogey here, but the decision to legalize marijuana, okay? Uh, uh, listen, I went to college in the 70s, so I, I, I went to college in the 70s and uh, early 80s, and so I'm not, uh, you know, I get it. Um, but I'll say this. Uh, I know from some 
people I'm very close with who are very high up in insurance companies, that if you look at the states that have legalized marijuana, the number of auto-related accidents has gone through the roof. Yep. Thank you, Eric. That's right. It's coming. Now, we just decided as a society to yep. do this. I Again, I never felt older than when I turned to my wife recently and said, I don't know if that's a very good idea. You know? <laughs> I mean, I felt like I was... Ne- yep. but, the, but the truth is, we are going to likely see an enormous increase in motor vehicle-related accidents yes, because will. of a society, our Massachusetts decision... Listen, and I'm not, I understand it. I mean, we could sit down and talk about alcohol versus marijuana. Uh, that's not the that's argument. not even the issue. No. The, the fact is, we're going to see more of this. Yeah. You know, so. Because now it's considered legal and the yeah, people I mean, think it's, it's a little it's bit more. It's the new okay. alcohol. Oh, that's right. right. And so what's going to happen when, when we have a kid who's driving, is stoned, and hurts texting somebody else? at the same and time. And texting at the same time. Right, so on one hand, we have society saying, we're going to make this legal. And at the same time, basically a legal system that says you're going to pay for this it's complicated contradiction right the, the, i mean some people say well i don't want to put people in jail for smoking weed that also is not the argument no the argument really there is no more argument unfortunately the argument is done now we're going to have to find a way to manage this but yes there's statistically incidents of motor vehicle accidents goes up in teenagers but also in in anyone any age group that smokes mm-hmm. you know you can we have we have wonderful data to show this that the the THC content is higher in those folks there's a graph that i show in some of my lectures that shows this big increase in young kids but there's also an increase in people 65 or older. Oh, sure. That's showing up with marijuana in their system after driving. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know. I have a solution. Yes. Driverless vehicles. Listen. The autonomous you, car. You we're five, we're five years away, right? I mean, what, what's the insurance industry ta- saying about that? Well, th- those I've spoken to have said that it's going to be a much longer period of time We'll have the vehicles in existence, but in terms of it being a, you know, ubiquitous right. solution to the problem. Call up the car but, and but, it picks you it, up and takes you to work. But who are you going to sue then, right? If, let's say a motor vehicle, you know, you've got your driverless car and it, and it does crash into I bet someone. there'll be a lot less accidents. Uh, there's no question. If you take human error out of motor vehicle claims, you, yeah. you eliminate about 99% right. of them. So, yeah, there's no question that autonomous vehicles is going to increase the safety of of vehic- you know, eliminate vehicular claims, um, period. Oh, it is going to do that. Uh, it's going, and the only cases that will exist after that are mouth are, are malfunctioning vehicles, which right. you'll have a certain number of those, yeah. but it won't be big. It won't be big. I mean, when was the last There's time you bought solution. a cal- When was the last time you bought a calculator that didn't add right? I mean, <laughs> it, they get it down. Yeah. Wow, well, this, this adds, you know, a whole nother topic for another day about, mm. you know, driverless cars. Why don't we, you know, we're going to have at some point, you know, we've got all these machines. We're going to put everybody out of work. We're going to put the truck drivers out of work. What is everyone going to well, do? Well, the Da surgeon, right? You won't, right? right? You'll have a robotic and surgeon. And my, my son is actually working on that right now, mm-hmm. doing this biomedical robotics. Well, so at some point, putting stints at some point, it may be really good that, that we have marijuana legal because we <laughs> just well, smoke and sit just, in the back seat. And that's all that's going to happen. The we're not going to work. have to do anything else. <laughs> Folks, we've had a wonderful show. Eric, thanks so much for coming yeah, in thanks tonight. Thanks, Eric. Everybody 
everybody. We will see you. Actually, we won't see you at all because it's radio, but we will hear with you <laughs> next week on The Dr. Joe Show. Mark, thanks for everything. You got it, buddy. Vincent Van Gogh.